Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints. Episode 30, Demon Slayer. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Today, we'll be talking about one of the great saints of the early church, a heroine who battled a demon and emerged triumphant. The Virgin, Martyr, and Demon Slayer, St. Margaret of Antioch. All we really know about Margaret is that she lived in the late 3rd and early 4th century, dying around the year 304, under the great persecution of the Emperor Diocletian. You can hear a lot more about this in several of our other episodes, including episode 1. Margaret is the western version of her name. In the east, she is known as Marina. And seeing as she comes from Antioch in Syria, Marina is very likely her original name. But for this episode, we'll stick with the more familiar Margaret. Margaret's life is legendary, like many saints of the early church. Her story was recorded centuries after her death, in the 9th century, by St. Rabanus Morris, one of the great intellects of the early Middle Ages. Her story grew across the medieval period as Margaret became an ever more popular saint, called upon as one of the 14 holy helpers, together with St. Blaise, the subject of episode 28. One of those particularly efficacious saints who could be called upon to aid the faithful in their everyday needs. So, whether or not the story I'm about to tell you is literally true is, of course, less relevant than the deeper meaning contained within it, the lessons that we can draw as Christians from the legend of St. Margaret. So with that in mind, let's get on with the tale. The story goes that Margaret was orphaned as a young girl, and raised by devout Christian foster parents in the city of Antioch. Antioch was one of the largest cities of the ancient world, a sprawling metropolis in the heart of Syria. To the Romans, it signified everything that separated the east from the west. The contrast of dazzling wealth and luxury with the abominable squalor in which ordinary people lived. A fairly large Christian community had grown up there, especially among the poorer classes. So that in the days of Diocletian's great persecution, Antioch became one of the epicenters of the pagan attacks on Christianity. Growing up as a Christian in this vast cosmopolitan city, Margaret grew into a deeply devout woman, a model of her faith, and she determined to take a vow of chastity, to give herself solely to Christ. Unfortunately, her great beauty drew the attention of a Roman governor in Antioch named Olibrius, who lusted after her virginity and used Margaret's Christian faith as a pretext to punish her when she refused his advances. Margaret, accordingly, was locked away in a dungeon, 
left only with the Lord as her company. We read her prayer from the Middle English life of St. Margaret's in modern translation. As Margaret realized that there were darker forces at work behind the persecution which had led her into this cell. Quotes Do not abandon me, living Lord. Watch over and help me, and grant it to me that I may lay eyes on the wicked devil who is waging war against me. And let me speak with him, Lord of Judgments. He humiliates and hates me, and I am not aware that he ever received any harm from me. But his nature is such, and his malignant heart so full of poison, that he hates every good, and every holy or wholesome thing is hateful to him. You, Lord, are the judge of living and dead. Decide between us, and do not be angry at what I say, my joy. For one thing, I beseech you, always and everywhere, that you guard my virginity and violet for yourself, my soul against sin, my reason and wisdom against senseless idols. In you, my Savior, is all I desire. May you be blessed forever, beginning and end, without end or beginning, for all eternity. Amen. End quotes. Many saints in the early church realized that there were demonic forces at work in the persecution of early Christians. But few saints have deliberately asked to be shown the demons that trouble them. Many have battled them out of necessity, but few have sought out the fights. Margaret's is one of those few. Listening to her prayer, the Lord then revealed to Margaret's in her prison cell the appearance of the demon that was troubling her a demon which took the form of a terrible dragon. Reading from her life again, quotes, Suddenly out of a corner there came towards her a fiend from hell in the form of a dragon. So dreadful they were aghast at the sight of the horror, glittering all over as if he had been gilded. His hair and his long beard shone with gold, and his grisly teeth were like dark iron. His eyes gleamed brighter than stars or jewels, broad as basins in his horned head, on either side of his great hooked nose. Flames were flickering from his hideous mouth, and from his nostrils there streamed dense smoke, the foulest of vapors, and he thrust out his tongue, so long he could swing it around his neck, and it looked as if a sharp sword was coming from his mouth flashing like lightning and sparkling with fire, and the place was filled with an overpowering stench and shimmered in the dragon's reflected glare. End quotes. In the Middle Ages, when this story was written down, Christians had both a literal and a figurative belief in demons. In other words, it wasn't a crazy stretch of the imagination for a Christian to believe that a demon could appear in front of you in the form of a dragon. But the exact appearance that it took was laden with symbolic meaning. It wasn't just an arbitrary appearance. This makes sense when we understand that the medieval worldview itself 
was profoundly symbolic. Medieval people tended to see their world in imagistic terms. Everything stood for something else. A tree had symbolism, a mountain had symbolism. Fantastic creatures like dragons had symbolism, all contained within them. Nothing was purely literal. There was always a metaphor at work. In this case, the particular details of a demon's visible form could also be viewed as symbols of its interior nature. This held true all through the Middle Ages, long after devils had ceased to be seen as embodied creatures. They were seen by this point in history as pure spirits, the way the church teaches they are today. And as pure spirits, they could take any form they wanted to. So the details of their form, of their appearance, have particular symbolic meaning. The way the demon chooses to present itself tells you about what the demon actually is. In the example of Margaret's dragon, there's a wealth of imagery to convey spiritual truths to us. The worm is both hideous and highly decorated, glittering with a sheen of guilt to conceal a twisted form. His sickening smell, a common feature of demonic descriptions, cannot be concealed. Indeed, it's mentioned twice. The demon has a long and sharpened tongue, the better for telling lies and consuming those who believe them, while the threatening smoke from his nostrils obscures his vile visage. Not all spiritual guides of the time would have encouraged staring long at such an abysmal sight. But through the vision of a saint as mighty as Margaret's, we are granted a glimpse of the true nature of evil. A glimpse that ought to be instructive and encouraging, as it highlights the deceptiveness of diabolical power. We realize through looking at this glimmering illusion of the dragon that in reality, demons have hardly any more power than we give them. All the same, Margaret herself is shaken by the demon's appearance. We read again, quotes, Her face grew pale with the terror that seized her, and she was so frightened that she forgot the plea she had made before to be granted a sight of her unseen foe, and it did not occur to her that her prayer was answered. End quote. But this concession to Margaret's humanity gives us a dramatic preparation for the devil's ensuing defeat. As Margaret makes ready to be swallowed by the dragon, she invokes her divine protector, the Lord God, in prayer. Quoting from Margaret, Devils fear your anger, and angels too. You harrowed hell, and overcame as champion the accursed spirit who is trying to destroy me. Look, he is doing his best to devour me, and hopes to drag me down to the dreadful pits where he has his lair. But I cross myself now, in your blessed name. End quote. Then, the story tells us, the true battle is joined. Quoting once more, and then she traced on her body, downwards and then across, 
the precious sign of the beloved cross that Christ was raised on. And the dragon rushed at her as she did this, and poised his hideous mouth, cavernously huge, high above her head, and stretched out his tongue to the soles of her feet, and tossed her in, swallowing her into his monstrous belly. But to Christ's honor and his own destruction. For the sign of the cross that she was armed with swiftly set her free and brought him sudden death as his body burst in two in the middle. And that blessed maiden Margaret, completely unharmed, without a mark on her, walked out of his belly, praising aloud her Savior in heaven. End quote. It is the sign of the cross, strengthened by the holy name of Jesus, which delivers Margaret from the dragon. We've seen this before in the lives of other saints who have battled with evil. St. George especially, from back in our first episode. The sign of the cross is compared to a weapon in the lives of the saints. A weapon against the forces of darkness. A weapon which defends Christ's chosen and destroys his enemies. Throughout the Middle Ages, the sign of the cross was ascribed all number of powers, great and small, from warding away demons to absolving venial sins, as the Church now teaches. By demonstrating the power of the sign of the cross in this beautiful life of St. Margaret's, the story reminds us that even our small daily acts of devotion, like making the sign of the cross, and speaking the holy name of Jesus, belong to an ancient faith which shields our souls in spiritual warfare. Something as plain and simple as making the sign of the cross or uttering the holy name with devotion can have profound power against darkness. Of course, these fairly minor acts aren't always sufficient to address very serious cases of demonic influence and possession. That's why, thank God, we have exorcism. But for most of us, day to day, we can and should trust in their power to protect us, because God has delegated His power, the source of all true power, to these acts to give us his protection. St. Margaret's invocation of the cross and the holy name in this story show us the typical attitude of medieval Christians toward the danger of the demonic. While devils do retain a presence in this world, they are cretinous, cowardly creatures that will flee at the mere mention of the divine. After her remarkable deliverance from the belly of the dragon, Margaret gains a new vision. A different demon. A man made of pure shadow. So grisly, so loathsome, the story tells us, that no one could easily find words to describe it, with both his hands tightly bound to his gnarled knees. Immediately the saints thanks God for her victory 
and when she has finished her prayer, the new devil speaks to her and explains its true purpose. Quotes, Margaret, maiden, you have done enough to me. Do not torture me any more with the blessed prayers that you say so often, for they bind me most painfully and make me so weak that I cannot summon up any kind of strength. You have overthrown my brother most terribly and killed the most cunning devil in hell, whom I sent to devour you in the form of a dragon and attack with his great power the virtue of your virginity and make sure that your memory would not be kept alive among mankind on earth. You defeated him and destroyed him with the Holy Cross, and you are killing me too with the power of the prayers which are so often on your lips. But leave and let me go, lady. I beg you. End quote. The notion of a demonic brotherhood, a conspiracy of devils against the human race, was not new in the late Middle Ages, when this story was written down. But in the hands of this story's author, it becomes a vehicle for conveying aspects of demonology which might otherwise escape our attention. Devils, we learn, can evidently work in pairs, with a cunning but craven mastermind hiding behind an intimidating but unsubtle enforcer, as shown by the relationship between this shadowy figure and his brother the dragon. But upon realizing the impotence of the frightful creature who frightened her not at all, as the story says, Margaret, quotes, grasped him firmly by his hideous hair, and swung him upwards and then threw him down again to the ground and set her foot on his rough neck so that she can interrogate the devil. Fortified by a vision of the cross with the Holy Ghost perched upon it in the form of a dove, assuring her that you are a blessed maiden, for now the gates of paradise are opened ready for you. Margaret demands that the demon tell her its true nature. There follows a long and curious speech, full of insights into the ways of the demonic. It's too verbose to be quoted in full in our episode, so I'll give you a summary. The Shadowy Devil offers nothing less than a treatise on demonology. Although it refuses to yield its true name, it boasts to have been, quotes, the destruction of more men than anyone but Beelzebub himself, and identifies its draconic brother as Rufin, the fiercest and most crafty of all those in hell. Yet the cunning of these spirits avails them little in the light of divine grace. Christ is present in you, and so you do everything that you want with us, the demon says. Devils are especially thwarted by the sign of the cross, a point that we've already seen illustrated in the story, but which the demon now makes explicit when it tells Margaret, quotes, 
It seems to me that you are shining brighter than the sun, but although all your body is radiant with light, more than anything else, the fingers you use to bless yourself and to make the sign of the mighty cross that stole my brother from me and to bind me cruelly with vicious bonds seem to me so bright, so fair, and so dazzling that I cannot bear to look at them. So much that light seems to me to blaze and flash. End quote. Margaret is not amused by the demon's flattery and demands further information, prompting the devil to explain its particular field of expertise, the corruption of virgins. Unsurprisingly for a story that was likely written for nuns and consecrated virgins in the Middle Ages, the demon turns its stratagems against chastity into a list of thoroughly conventional advice for living a holy life. I hate doing this, it admits, but must do it all the same. Tell you how best they can overcome me, the weapons that wound me most. These amount to a series of standard counsels for those pursuing the religious life. They ought to eat and drink in moderation, mortify the flesh in some way or other, which is probably a warning to readers who are drawn to excessive penance. Avoid idleness, pray and seek prayers from holy men, reflect on pious thoughts, contrast in their minds what a vicious creature they are paying homage to if they submit to me, the devil, with the love of the gracious Lord of Heaven and his beloved Queen, the Lady of the Angels, that is, our Mother Mary. Confess their sins frequently, avoid temptation, and gird themselves with the sign of the cross. The story thus serves as a link across time and distance between Margaret's heroic age and the ordinary world of the reader, whether in the Middle Ages or today. Even today, the tale reminds us, you too can take part in the spiritual warfare that the ancient virgin martyr mastered simply by living a good Christian life. The rest of Margaret's conversation with the shadowy devil takes a kind of interesting turn, perhaps less relevant for its original audience, but maybe more interesting to us today. Pressed further by Margaret, the demon begins recounting in brief the usual story of the fall of the angels, with which I think we're all familiar. You can hear more about that from our episode on St. Michael. But the demon pauses midway to ask, and what would be the point of describing to you, or speaking at length, beautiful lady, of our nature and our race, which you can see for yourself set down in the books of Janis and Mambres? The books to which the demon is referring, the books of Janis and Mambres, have not survived the present day. But they belong to the world of Second Temple Judaism and early Christian Apocrypha. Janis and Mambres are the names we traditionally give to the, quotes, wise men and magicians at Pharaoh's courts, who compete with Moses in the book of Exodus. You may remember the story from Exodus where Moses is challenged by Pharaoh's sorcerers to prove the power of God against all of their tricks and illusions. In the first millennium AD, these wizards, Janis and Mambres, 
appeared very frequently in Jewish and Christian texts about demonology and magic and the occult. While the audience of the St. Margaret story in the Middle Ages would definitely not have had access to that kind of literature, as hardly any of it had passed directly into the medieval West, the medieval audience would have been aware of the names of Jannes and Mambres with their sorceress connotations. And so I think the meaning of this passage would have been fairly straightforward to the readers, and quite relevant to us as well that there is a wealth of lore out there that can be learned about devils, but really, a Christian needs none of it. The St. Margaret story once again connects its readers, that's us, to the wider world of antiquity, the ancient heroic age of the saints, only to remind us that our commonplace struggles in the present day matter far more than any ancient secrets we might wish to learn. Yet although the text would rather focus on the immediate worlds, the demon's speech to Margaret does contain several echoes of the ancient worlds that deserve mention. Namely, the story of how King Solomon trapped the demons in a jar. This story comes from the Testament of Solomon, an apocryphal Greek tale of the 5th or 6th century AD, which contains many of the elements of demonology that would inform the rites of exorcism employed in late antiquity and the early Middle Ages. So it's not a book of the Bible, it's an apocryphal text, but as we've seen from the lives of other early saints, Apocrypha still had an important role to play in shaping the mentality of the early church. In this Testament of Solomon, we are told that Solomon the Wise, while he lived on earth, confined us, the demons, in a jar. But then the men of Babylon came, and thought they had discovered a hoard of gold, and broke the vessel to pieces, and we, the devils, were let out, and then we overran all the wide world. Putting the demons back in the jar, so to speak, is the task of the exorcist, which is why the Testament of Solomon lays out many of the elements of exorcism which are still performed in the rites of the church by priests down to the present day. St. Margaret preserves a memory of a demon-haunted past, replete with Egyptian sorcerers and King Solomon's spells. But it's a distant world from the reader's own experience in the Middle Ages, and even more distant from our own today. Even if Margaret lived in an age of wizards and dragons and magic jars, her modern imitators should be content to invoke her memory, in our more mundane, but spiritually no less important, struggles. And so, fittingly, it is to memory that the text turns at last, and the story of St. Margaret closes its tale with a list of promises to those readers who keep her story alive. After banishing the demon back to hell, Margaret finally faces martyrdom at the hands of that wicked governor, Olibrius, who had locked her in prison in the first place. As the saint awaits her beheading, a sympathetic executioner allows her one last prayer in which she invokes divine blessings upon her future followers. Margaret asks, quotes, 
that whoever writes a book on my life, or acquires it when written, or whoever has it most often in hand, or whoever reads it aloud, or with good will listens to the reader, may have all their sins forgiven at once. Other promises follow. Illumination for those who build a church, or provide light for a chapel dedicated to her. Protection for women in labor. Salvation at the last judgment for those who call upon her name. And of course, protection from demons. These pious devotions fall into the category that the Church calls private revelation. We are not required to believe that any of these promises are actually true, but the Church does encourage us to foster our devotion to saints like Margaret's, with the confidence that she will be praying for us and helping us get to heaven. Margaret, therefore, is more than a martyr worthy of admiration. She is a living protectress of the faithful against the forces of darkness. It's hardly surprising that the story ends with her soul being carried up to heaven by a host of angels singing Sanctus, 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 the same prayer we recite every week at Mass, at which the hellish spirits began to howl and yell. Margaret is, from beginning to end, a champion of spiritual warfare. A true demon slayer. St. Margaret of Antioch is commemorated on the 20th of July in the West and the 17th of July in the East. She is one of the 14 Holy Helpers, that list of medieval saints who were so widely invoked in the Middle Ages for their aid, and so she has a very wide patronage. She is the protectress of the falsely accused, the dying, exiles, and peasants, probably due to her popularity with ordinary people in the Middle Ages. But she is also the patroness of pregnant women and nurses, probably because the story of her being born anew from the belly of the dragon reminded the medieval faithful of childbirth. If you'd like to learn more about St. Margaret's and deepen your own devotion to her, you'll find links to prayers and other resources in the show notes, as always. There, too, you'll find links to our Patreon, where you can support the show and receive access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as to my email address, where you can make suggestions for future episodes. May St. Margaret's Virgin, Martyr, and Demon Slayer Come to our aid, now and always, for the greater glory of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening, and God bless.